all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 171 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Criminal Code of Cyprus episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that there was a section in the Cyprus Criminal Code, and it was the code that criminalized homosexual acts between consenting male adults, known as Section 171. And with that little bit of criminal act knowledge, according to the people in Cyprus, formerly, this, of course, is Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Uh, how was your past weekend? Anything fun and exciting happen? The only other exciting thing that really happened was today when we, when I took the fam to go see Zootopia at the movie theater. We had uh, we had a lovely experience over a dime. It was a dime, and I had the worst experience at the movie theater that I can distinctly say I've had in many, many moons over a dime. What, like you were a dime short? Chiefly, I was owed a dime. And I don't really care because it's just a dime, right? I mean, all right, it's 10 cents. It's not the end of the world. But what started out as a, well, hang on, we'll just get you your dime real quick. Well, okay, you know, if you're going to do it, that's fine turned into like this huge fucking ordeal while we're already late for the movie and it's like they they seriously just need to train these kids better i mean it was really kind of sad because the girl yeah how, how did it all right, play out you give us a step-by-step <laughs> replay all right of this we, we arrived for a ten forty showing at uh, the movie theater this morning, and it's the first showing, you know, taking the whole family, so trying to get the uh, early bird pricing, as it were. And so we get there, it's probably about 10.36 or so, so just enough time, go purchase your tickets, grab the popcorn, go sit down, maybe you miss one preview, maybe none, you know, have some fun, do whatever. So we get there, and I go to replace the... Uh, I go to pay for everything and I used a couple of movie passes that I had gotten for Christmas and you know so it knocks the price down and also I had a leftover gift card and it basically after all that I got the price and it was $5.90 and so I give the, the girl there at the box office six bucks and she's like okay well your change is 10 cents and I'm like okay cool and she's like oh well I don't have 10 cents and i'm like oh well i mean whatever it's a dime it's not the end of the world but before i can say that the girl gets on the radio and she's like hey i need change because i don't have enough change for this customer so i'm like well shit you know i can i'll stand here for a minute and wait for a dime she's already <laughs> called for help this asshole over here wants his 10 cents yeah you know i had literally hadn't had any chance to say anything and then so she's like and she, she waits like 10 seconds and nobody responds. She's like, I repeat, I need some change for a customer over here. I don't have the right change. Can anybody help me? And I'm like, oh, dear God. So now there's like a line forming behind me. And I'm like, guys, it's just 10 cents. So I'm like, you know what? Let me just step to the side. 
you know, while we wait for someone to come up for my dime, because now it's turned into like an awkward situation. So, okay, whatever. I guess, I guess I'm waiting for a dime today. And so she's processing the line and nobody's coming. She never got a response on the radio. Nobody's coming to help her. And so I'm like looking at her and I'm like, you know, we have to buy some concessions. I'll say, if you just give me a quarter, I'll go get your change. I'll make change for you so that, you know, we can handle this and I'll give you your 15 cents back, you know, and she doesn't say anything. So I think she thinks like maybe she didn't hear me. So I repeat myself and she's like, well, I can't do that because then I'll be short in my register. Short a whole quarter. Yes. Yes. You know, technically 15 cents because, you know, she owes me 10. Right. So, I'm like, oh, dear God, why are you freaking out over 15 cents? So now my wife is like, is she seriously not like giving you? I mean, I'm like, I don't know. I was like, why don't you guys go ahead and just get in line, get the popcorn and stuff. Um, and I will wait. Since it's now turned into this big of a deal, I guess I'm just going to wait. So still nobody comes. She ends up processing the rest of the line. And then she goes off by herself to the concessions fucking thing. And she's over there for, I don't know how long, 30 seconds or something like this. And she comes back. She's still empty handed. And then she gets all flustered and frustrated, pops open the drawer and just gives me a quarter and goes here. And I'm like, Oh no, no, not anymore. No, not anymore. We don't get away with just here after all this. No, I take the quarter over to the stupid chick at the concession register. And this particular, uh, theater has a, like, it's got this kind of little concession avenue, right? So you go into <laughs> the concession area and on the back side of this concession is the bar, right? So I walk directly over to the bar and then I'm like, excuse me. I just need to get two dimes and a nickel for this quarter because it's turned into a big deal now and I need two dimes and a fucking nickel, right? Now, I'm not cursing. Sorry, this is going on in my head. I want to make, you know, make it clear. I'm not cursing. So I'm like, can I just get two dimes and a nickel for this quarter? Well, I can't open my drawer unless somebody makes a purchase. I'm like, it's a quarter. I'm just, I'm not, you know, I was like, so I get a dollar. I get my, I, I, what do you got for a dollar? I will buy something for a dollar so that I can get this change. And she's like, well, we don't have anything for a dollar. I'm like, you know what? My wife's coming around there. She, we've got a large popcorn. We've got some refill drinks and stuff because this is a particular theater chain that has refill drinks. So, and refill popcorn buckets, if you know who I'm talking about. So uh, I was like, how about you just ring that up and I'll give you the money here. Well, I have a line of people and I can't let you skip the line. I'm like, well, then wait for the door drawer to open when some when you ring this next person up. I can't do that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I go and I get in line now and wait with my family after we've gotten our drinks and our popcorn. And then she rings me up and I'm like, and, and, and of course, it's an odd fucking number or whatever, because this particular theater chain doesn't understand how to round things to quarters anymore fine whatever and i'm like so my change is 60 cents and she goes to give me two quarters and a dime and i was like uh-uh mm -mm -mm -mm, no you will give me two dimes and a quarter two dimes a nickel another quarter and then a final dime and that is what you're going to give me for my change because by god i'm getting my 15 cents out of this so I get my 15 cents. I walk it all the way back over to the box office chick and I give her the 15 cents and I'm like, here, now you're not short. And that was my experience getting into the fucking movie theater today so I could watch Zootopia. In which a child is literally yelling at his mom about 45 minutes into the film. I'm tired and I want to go home. I'm tired and I want to go home. So I'm just like, you know what? Why don't you do what the fucking kid says? 
I kind of wonder, you wonder in these situations, like, what what do the... Hang on, somebody's dying. On the runway? Are they dying on tarmac 69? <laughs> That's what it sounds like. They, But, like, you kind of wonder in these situations, like, what the people working there are thinking. Who is this horrible man? Why is he demanding from this poor girl that dime? But, Matt, you have become that guy. Oh, I'm worse than that guy. I was so pissed off about it that I, I knew I needed to wait. I knew I needed to wait. So I waited... And I cooled down. We then ended up going off and uh, going out to lunch afterwards. And then we went off to Sam's to get some stuff to prep for our block party that we're having on Friday. And then I got home and I went to their website and officially lodged a complaint. And I detailed my experience, making sure, making sure to reiterate that the initial girl that helped me I don't blame her at all. She was actually just trying to take care of the customer and get him some change. And nobody ever came to help her. And she tried to go and solve the problem and no one would help her solve the problem. So I made abundantly clear that this girl was not at fault as far as I was concerned. Right? This was just terrible training issues with people who are too afraid to open a register over 25 cents. I mean, seriously, over a fucking dime, really, when it gets down to it. And the fact that they had to make me wait over a dime. Like, I don't care. It's a dime. If you hadn't started this whole stupid process in the first place, I would have just said, you know what? It's a dime. I'll live and moved on. You know, so, yeah. Really, guys, if this is any proof, this particular theater chain is definitely not the best seat in town. Unless you live in that area where Matt is living, where that is the only movie theater until you hit the woodlands, which... And literally, the only reason this particular theater is making any money at all is simply because of its location. Convenience. Um, Yeah. It's like they just lucked out with a really good location because it's just... No, there are better theaters... So that's that's and and I and at the end of my little angry email that I sent, I made sure to put in there I don't want anything. Just please fix this. <laughs> please listen to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, were you like super dad after this or were your girls like, "Come on, dad, let, let's just go." Oh no. I mean, cuz the whole thing took about 5 minutes. So I mean, it oh. you know, we, so we made it. Nobody, you know, the kids enjoyed the movie. They had their fun. Uh the movie was good, so that was nice on top of it and yeah. At the end of the day, everyone lived. So, all right. Well, then I guess um before we get into the news, we do have some email. Yay. Real email to read. Uh, this was an email sent to the show at slscast.com. So you two can do that if you are so inclined. We don't have any Twitter followers to speak of. And of course, that's at the SLScast for Twitter. Um, but yeah, we have a new emailer. It, yay. Yay. Uh, a self-described lurker. And that's okay. We're just glad to hear anyone. (laughs) The subject is movies, and this comes to us from 
Caper Girl Mel. And she says, Hey guys, so I basically just power listened to the last nine episodes over a matter of two days. Yay me! So many movies discussed. I'm one of those lurking listeners, if you want to call it that. Lurking as in I listen but don't always think to respond in any way to let you know I'm a listener of the pod. Sorry guys. Makes sense? Course it does! Anyways, just wanted to say I do enjoy the pod, even though I'm not a big fan of awards shows and the like. But I do like to listen to your take on movies. Take Deadpool, for example. Yes, I know you both liked it, but you had perfectly valid cons from the movie that I hadn't even considered. For me, I love Deadpool because it was fucking Deadpool. I thought that Colossus was pretty badass looking and the fight scenes were great. It could have used more. I totally agree with you there, but they gotta save some for the Blu-ray extra features. <laughs> Actually, I heard they didn't have enough budget for more fight scenes, but whatevs. And I did hear Matt say his first memory to Ryan Reynolds was from Blade Trinity. Really? You need to go watch some two guys, a girl, and a pizza place, my friend. Ryan was basically practicing for the role of Wade Wilson on that show. Unless you've already seen that show, in which case you're forgiven. Actually, the first time Ryan Reynolds was on my radar was from a little Canadian show called The Odyssey circa 1992. It was a good show for the 90s. The premise is that a kid goes into a coma and wakes up in a world where there's no parents and kids rule. Ryan played a character named Marco, and he had a pretty badass costume, if I remember correctly. Anywho, I was wondering if you'd be interested in taking some suggestions for movies to watch, like perhaps ones of a Canadian persuasion. Keep potting on! Mel, a.k.a. Caper Girl Mel. Well, thank you for that email. Camp Girl Mel. Uh, yes, I did watch Two Guys, a Girl, in a Pizza Place, the very first episode of that show. Watched a couple of other episodes and just kind of drifted out from that show for myself. Um, I, we will always take movie suggestions for any from anyone. I think uh, you would agree with that, there, Tim. Right? Yeah, except from the cat and and the cat. He he can't. He's banned. <laughs> Unless they come through, unless they come via Raphael. If Raphael wants to talk through the cat, I'll listen. <laughs> and and again, for those of you who do not know who we are mentioning or talking about, we have a podcasting community that we converse with on the regular. Uh, Mel is a part of yes. uh, is kind of a part of this as well. Uh, yes, it's our incestual circle of podcasting. Yeah, uh, Cat and Miranda, who we've mentioned, Miranda. Right. Are part of Midnight Movie Nights. Nights. And then also, yes, and then Kat and Raphael for We're Not Here to Please You. Uh, Johnny for Johnny White Trash uh, and Available in ADHD. And I don't know how Uh, good all those other people are. I only listen to our (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Which is, you know, not self-centered at all. No, only ours. (laughs) Nice. Anyways, (laughs) Anyways, <laughs> yeah, hey, uh, as far as the lurking part goes, you feel free to lurk as long as you want. We're just glad that we have another confirmed listener to the show. So, you know, we're like up to seven, I think, now, right? That's, a, that's fantastic. So, there is that. Um, and, uh, yes, do you remember this Two Guys, A Girl, in a Pizza Place? Oh, Tim? most definitely. It was actually one of those shows... That was actually funny. They also named it. They also renamed it. Like just two guys and a girl. Season in. Yeah, yeah. They got rid of yeah. the pizza place. It was weighing him down. <laughs> uh, the comedy was good. The pizza was not. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
Anyways, uh, but yeah, thank you very much for your thoughts on Deadpool. And please feel free to send us email again, anyone. Uh, <laughs> please, anyone, Bueller, to the show at slscast.com. So there you go. That is that. And I think we are ready for the news, are we not, sir? Ah, yes. <laughs> Here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> So, first up from HuffingtonPost.com, by way of Priscilla Frank, Van Gogh documentary, to be first fully painted feature film ever made. The film will incorporate over 120 of Van Gogh's paintings, animated and brought to life. Yes. Uh, Let's see here. A biopic about Van Gogh's tumultuous life and mysterious death entitled Loving Vincent is currently in the works, and the film will be made entirely of animated paintings in the swirling style of Van Gogh's canvases. Uh, There is a trailer embedded in this article, so please feel free to watch that. Um, But I think this is really kind of a cool idea. It's a very brief article. Uh, I'll only read one other part here. It says there are over 120 of Van Gogh's iconic paintings folded into the narrative. Their inherent buzz of motion translating to literal movement thanks to the painstaking hand-painted animation. Um, so, and it moves on to talk about the plot and stuff, but definitely check this out and feel free to also please check out the trailer. It's very interesting. Um, what do you think, Tim? Have you heard about this project? Have you checked out the trailer if you have? Where are you at on this? Yeah, I, I think it would be pretty cool. Or it will be very cool. I don't know if it was like a Kickstarter-type campaign type of dealie or what, but they're still looking for artists to work on it. And they showed like a behind-the-scenes video of... I'm going to say it's not definitely not 100, but like maybe 25 or 30 artists... Uh, tables like all right next to each other just uh, simultaneously working on various scenes of this movie so i think it'll be really neat and definitely something different even visually pleasing to the eyes right on right on all right well that is one of my two news pieces for this week so uh you just you know jump on in and let me know when you're ready to tag out okay i'll go ahead and do two pieces from DeadlineHollywood.com, Michael White dies. Rocky Horror and Monty Python producer was 80 years old. Michael White, the Scottish producer whose long list of largely UK stage and film credits include Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, has died. He was 80. The producer died March 8th of heart failure in Ojai, California. White was the subject of the 2013 documentary, The Last Impresario. White, who received a 2014 Special Lifetime Achievement Olivier Award, produced his first play at the West End in 1961, but made his breakthrough in 1970 when he, Robert Stigwood, and Hillard Elkins produced the widely controversial nudity-loaded O Calcutta in London. In the following years, White was involved in London productions of such touchstone musicals as Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Annie, A Chorus Line, and Joe Orton's groundbreaking play Loot Entertaining Mr. Sloan, and What the Butler Saw. On Broadway, he was a producer of Anthony Schaefer's Sleuth 
and Athol Fugard's Siswi Banzi is dead and the island. Stage work led films as White went on to produce or help produce. His first two films were the 1975 cult classics The Horaki Horror Picture Show and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Later credits include My Dinner with Andre, the Rocky Horror follow up Shock Treatment, concert documentary Erg, A Music War, Eat the Rich, Nuns on the Run, and John Waters' Polyester. So, R.I.P. producer of Rocky Horror Picture Show and Monty Python, Michael White, passed away at the age of 80. Next up, something here that I know Matt is very knowledgeable of. This is pertaining to what we talked about, a couple, it must have been a couple months ago, that Paramount was suing this fan film, the Star Trek fan film, because they were allegedly ripping off all of Star Trek. What was the name of the fan film? Started with an A, right? Uh, yes, sir. It is called Axanar. Axanar, yes. From io9.com, helpful CBS lawyers explain the many, many ways a Star Trek fan film is ripping them off. This one here is written by Catherine Trenacosta. And it says this, Remember how CBS is suing to prevent the crowdfunded fan film Axanar from being completed, now the channel is suing the filmmakers even harder. CBS's lawyer has submitted 28 pages of documents detailing every possible thing that they claim Axanar infringed on, alleging basically every type of copyright infringement known to man. After CBS originally filed its motion last December, the defendants, the makers of Axanar, asked for more specific... specificity... Specificity! Which of the many, many copyrighted parts of Star Trek material were they being accused of infringing on? Since lawyers love nothing more than responding to those kinds of queries by throwing a giant pile of documents straight into your face, that's exactly what happened. 28 pages show original the Star Trek on one side and Axanar on the other. So that even a judge who has managed to never even heard of Star Trek could understand their claim. And they have a picture of Spock on the right side and uh, one of the Vulcans in the Axanar, from the Axanar short film, on the left. Underneath this picture, there's a caption which reads, The first Vulcan appearances were the first and second pilot episodes of the original series, The Cage, and Where No Man Has Gone Before in 1966. Vulcans also appeared in the original series episodes, The Man Trap in 1966, and A Muck in Time in 67. They appear in many Star Trek television series and Star Trek motion pictures. The image above is Spock from the original series episode Space Seed in 67 in both prelude to Axanar in the Star Trek copyrighted works, Vulcans have pointy ears and distinctive eyebrows. Yes, I wonder why maybe that is because they are fucking Vulcans. But the article continues. The costumes bits don't sound too damning until Axanar's perfect replicas are placed next to stills from the shows. Quote, uniform with gold shirt, end quote, sounds like a pretty basic concept. But the outfits worn in Axanar look a lot like the uniforms worn by Kirk. The most weirdly specific costume bit has to be, quote, triangular medals on uniform, end quote. And they have a picture of Kurt wearing his officer uniform with these triangular 
medals, I guess. And then there's a character from Axanar with his triangular medals as well. More than, in the article goes on again, more than once CBS lists stardates as a copyrighted element. And of course, how can anyone else speak Klingon since CBS owns the rights, the copyrights on the language? In case you weren't wondering what the legal mood and theme of Star Trek was, the amended document describes it as, quote, science fiction adventure, end quote, define thusly. The mood and theme of Star Trek as a science fiction action adventure first appeared in the original series episode The Cage and has also appeared in all subsequent episodes of the original series and other derivative Star Trek copyrighted works. And really goes on from there. Uh, It kind of talks about something that Matt mentioned to me earlier on that they own, what'd you say, Matt? Light speed or warp speed? The the concept of space travel. Yeah, the the concept of space (laughs) travel. I'm sure warp speed is in there also. I mean, this is, uh, what do you think about this, Matt? Do you still kind of hold hold your guns to to what you were saying before where, you know, they should be pleased that people are making fan films because they love their property so much. And that's the thing is that, you put yourself in a precarious position by letting fan stuff go for so long and then start claiming as long as they're not making money, right? They're letting all this fan stuff go for so long, including direct continuations of uh, the original series. And then they want to pick and choose when something is not made. It's still not making money, but they just want to pick and choose because uh, for whatever reason they feel, it's probably going to be a pre- better product than what they are currently coming up with. So now they come up and they have 28 pages worth of shit that will they want to try and claim copyright on, but they haven't claimed copyright on it in 40 years, um, in the vast majority of cases. The other side of that is is that Axonar team already sent a sent stuff to the courts saying they they've had x amount of time to reply to everything and that they haven't they've already missed the deadline and they have filed and had that placed within the court saying sorry paramount already missed the deadline so they can come out looking like uh they they've walked out straight off from a from the get a life skit from snl with their 28 pages of stuff but it starts to make them look more petty number 1 and number 2 when you're late, you're late. So, I don't know. I just completely disagree with everything that CBS is doing right now. They're literally biting the hand that feeds them. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, if you're gonna say that they, if they're gonna come out and say that they own all this, all this shit, they should have done it sooner. Though I do understand why they would want to claim copyright infringement because I mean Axanar somebody's gonna make some money and if they're willing to you know I I don't know what the donation like what what their uh their their goal like what how much money they've already made from crowdfunding or not but man it's got to be a considerable amount considering they raised I want to say it was like 1.6 million yeah that's a lot of money so I, I in in, in that yeah, regard and they've continued to raise and they've continued to raise I think and through other source funding sources I want to say that they're in the neighborhood of like four million dollars but they're still already in the hole beyond the four million dollars they've raised so again still not making any money and then the finished product has to sell and I don't know that they're doing that in terms I don't even know how 
they're going to end up trying to sell it or anything. Um, but yeah, it just, it is what it is, I guess. I don't know. Uh, let's see here. So for me, my final piece of news here comes to us from news.com.au from the entertainment section here. Uh, and this is by way of, we don't have a, we, yeah, looks like, uh, the AAP. So maybe Australian Associated Press? Uh, Let's see here. Keanu Reeves, spectacular film flop. That's right, folks. Keanu Reeves' new film, Exposed, has flopped spectacularly, taking in less than 200 Australian dollars in its opening weekend at the UK box office. The crime thriller was only screened in five cinemas, making a paltry uh, Australian $168. Uh, the terrible figure means that it made $33.39 per theater, roughly the price of two adult tickets. Um, this is... A huge thing that's going on uh, because apparently the original director, Guy or G, um, Malik Linton, uh, actually sued to have his name removed from the film credits um, because this was originally supposed to be a bilingual drama in Spanish and English titled, titled Daughter of God and was then recut into a crime thriller focusing on Keanu. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know that this is necessarily Keanu Reeves's fault or even the director's fault, but I guess when you hear about these things, Tim and anyone out there in podcast land, do things like this make you want to see a movie like this more or see this movie less? Or just kind of find out why it is the way that it is. I would only be intrigued if I had the option of watching what it was supposed to be. Okay. If the director is willing to distance himself away from his film, and it is known as a fact that the studio fucked it over, then I have no desire to watch it. And apparently this is another Lionsgate movie, so... Mm, there is that. Uh, but all right, well, that is going to conclude my news, sir. So I guess bring us home on the news. Alrighty, last pieces of news here, open for discussion. From Variety.com, Steven Spielberg, J.J. Abrams, Peter Jackson backing Sean Parker's bold home movie plan. This is written by Brett Lang. And I find this to be absolutely fascinating because, Matt, I know you and I have talked about movie pirating and the idea of watching movies from the comfort of your home for the past couple years now. So, and this is actually a plan, an idea that might come to fruition. But the article says this, Screening Room, the Sean Parker and Prem Akagarju-backed startup that's looking to offer new releases of movies in the home, has lined up a number of Hollywood's heavyweight filmmakers as key supporters. Steven Spielberg, Peter Jackson, J.J. Abrams, Brian Grazer, and Ron Howard are among those backing the company, according to multiple sources. Only some of them have invested money, but all are shareholders in the startup, which is represented by powerhouse attorney Skip Brittenham. They join former Sony Pictures vice chairman Jeff Blake, also a stakeholder, who has been consulting for Screening Room for months and helping lead the charge. 
The company will offer new movies in the home for 50 bucks at the same time as they open in theaters. It would charge 150 bucks for access to the anti-piracy equipped set-top box that transmits the films. Customers have 48 hours to watch the movies, and the idea is to capture an audience older than teens and young adults who might have responsibilities such as children that prevent them from going to the theater. In order to convince studios and exhibitors to back the plan, Screening Room is cutting them in one of, uh, cutting them in on a significant percentage of the revenue. Theater owners could get as much as $20 of the $50 fee. Customers also receive two free tickets to see the movie at a cinema, which will further benefit exhibitors when concessions are purchased. But exhibitors have long resisted any moves to shorten the amount of time between a film's theatrical release and its debut on home entertainment platforms. Many believe that any effort to shrink that window undermines the health of their business and encourages people to stay home. Parker is best known for his roles in internet companies such as Napster, Facebook, and Spotify. Ekagarju was previously a partner at the electronic music company SFX Entertainment and was a partner at Intermedia Partners. The endorsement of filmmakers like Spielberg, Grazer, Jackson, Howard, and Abrams, who have directed or produced some of the biggest movies in history, will be crucial as Parker and Akakarju, Akakaraju try to convince theater owners and studios to embrace their technology and should help attract investors. End all quotes there. Matt, what do you think? Do you think this is a good idea for, let's say, uh, moms out there that have to take care of their newborns and whatnot? Or do you think this will appeal to a broader spectrum of filmgoers? I think that uh, their heart's in the right place by trying to either offer movie tickets or cut the theater chains in um, for, you know, some percentage of it to help mitigate any lost revenue. And quite frankly, I would say that this would actually have, in that particular instance, I think it would actually help theaters because a lot of the people that they're trying to target with this are people who, for whatever reason, don't generally go to the movies anyway. So if you are targeting the right people and still cutting them in on the on the money... Um, yeah, I think this is a phenomenal idea. I know I would be really stoked to do something like that, for sure. And it's probably worth noting that, you know, a movie theater makes probably most of their money off candy and other concessions and whatnot, because whenever you pay for your $13 ticket, uh, most of that is going to the movie theater, to the movie studio who made that film. Correct. Yeah, I, I want to say that it's 50-50 nowadays, if I, the last... The last time I looked into it, well, I mean, is the split, e- yeah, even is the split on the tickets. Even that is pretty bad for movie theaters trying to make money, especially since people are demanding oh, yeah, cheaper sure, sure. ticket no, prices and sure. all that. They, good stuff. Yeah, they definitely make the majority of their money on the concessions, which is why you know a bag of popcorn seeds is like a thousand dollars. Yeah, <laughs> unedible popcorn. Yeah, and it's also worth yeah. noti- uh, mentioning that this article doesn't mention AMC is actually backing this, which I think is pretty. Pretty interesting. Lastly, the last final finale piece of news, the end here, Deadline.com. Hollywood's flood of big budget films could be dire for profits. 
say analysts. This is written by David Lieberman. I don't think he is one of these analysts, but let's find out. It's time for Hollywood's periodic wake-up slam in the face from Cowan and Company analyst Doug Krutz. He's been warning investors for years to beware of a profit squeeze at the major studios, but his latest analysis out today is the bleakest yet. By the way, this is from March 4th of this year. The outlook for film industry profitability is looking increasingly dire, he says. Indeed, 2016 could be a pivotally negative year in the economic fortune of one of America's highest profile industries. That might sound alarmist after a year when Kruitz's estimate operating income for the major studios increased by 5.5% to $5.2 billion. His number tries to factor in all the profits that movies make directly or indirectly, from licensed merchandise and theme parks, for example, and leaves out profits that studios seize from T or that studios see from TV networks or production. But he notes that proceeds increasingly are lopsided. Last year, only Disney, Universal, and DreamWorks Animation saw their film-related bottom lines grow from 2014. Warner Brothers, Fox, Lionsgate, Sony, and Paramount saw profits decline. And Disney Universal accounted for 70.5% of the industry's operating income, with Disney alone seeing 46.8%. That means the other six split less than 30%. When one company gets half of the profits in an industry, it's kind of scary. And it's not aberrational, Kruitz tells me. The studio profits are about to come, quote, under significant pressure with better positioned studios fighting to run in place while other studios experience significant declines in margins, end quote. That might shock some investors who place high valuations on film studios. Time Warner, Fox, and Viacom are also project upturns in their film earnings. Kruitz's view, quote, Most of these narratives are going to have sad endings, end quote. The main problem is that too many studios make too many big-budget franchise films. This year, studios will release 30 pictures that cost $100 million or more to produce, up from 22 last year. The ones that succeed strike gold, but the increased competition lowers the odds for anyone to break out. Quote, ultimately, we think many of these incremental blockbuster films are not going to work and incur significant losses for their studios, end quote, the analyst says. The trend is likely to continue because it's in nobody's interest to stop. Those who do would help their competitors, but, quote, have fewer chances of hitting one of the few home runs that arrives every year, end quote. Those familiar with game theory will recognize this as a classic dilemma known as the, quote, tragedy of the commons, end quote. As Kruitz puts it, quote, while everyone would be collectively better off with fewer blockbusters, no one is made individually better off by reducing their slate. And the article goes on from there. Matt, do you have any comments, questions, or concerns about this particular article? Like I said, I I truly can't wait for the crash to occur. Um, Not because I want people to lose their jobs or because I want studios to suffer for the sake of suffering, but because this... The bubble has got to burst so that we can get some good creativity back in uh, to 
the studio system so that we can actually get decent films, lower budgets, things that people can take better chances on, more original stories, more one-offs, things that don't require sequel potential or reboots and stuff. So, yeah, I, I, I can't wait for it to happen. Let's go. All right, well, that is going to conclude the news and bring us to... Fairy In this week's Three Squared, uh, we are going to be covering our favorite George Kennedy performances in honor of his passing. Uh, so, let's see here. We are, I'm going to run through these pretty darn quick, just in the interest of time, so we can make sure to focus on the movies. Um, I'm going to do these in chronological order. Believe it or not, George Kennedy has had a pretty storied career. And while he was not um, a necessarily a major, major player all the time, even his supporting roles uh, were usually in fantastic movies uh, where he was able to build up that, that roster. And he's also done some really cool stuff in starring roles as well. Um, so, yeah, here we go. Uh, first up from 1965 is Shenandoah. It's an uh, American Civil War film and it actually stars uh, James Stewart. Um, it also has Doug McClure and Glenn Corbett, uh, Patrick Wayne, in, in addition to many other people. Uh, but this actually takes place during eight, in 1864 in Virginia and um, basically covers the, um, the, the story of this family um, headed by James Stewart and all of the things that go into uh, family dynamics during this time period, including all of the war. It's really kind of interesting because this film uh, has huge anti-war sentiments throughout the throughout it, which weren't political, um, but just really trying to show the devastation that war caused on the home front a hundred years before. And yet, at the same time, it kind of helped ignite anti-war sentiment for the Vietnam War as well, which was, you know, kind of an interesting thing. So, you know, definitely check out this film. Really, really good. And George Kennedy uh, plays Colonel Fairchild in this. So you will be able to look for him there. Next up from 1967 is... The Dirty Dozen. Uh, it's the American war film, uh, basically about a um, group of guys who are trying to basically infiltrate a prison uh, in World War II and, and, and basically how they're kind of drum outs and bad dudes in one form or fashion, and yet they have to come together... Um, it's kind of like a last shot at redemption, even though they just kind of see it as a ticket out of the hole they're in. Um, but it comes together to be one of the best freaking war, uh, World War II movies uh, of the era. And it is just absolutely fantastic. Uh, stars Lee Marvin, Ernest Borgnine, Charles Bronson, uh, John Cassavetes, George Kennedy, of course, plays Major Max Armbruster. Uh, wonderful character. Telly Savalas is in this movie. Who loves you, baby? Um, just a fantastic group of guys, and you can really see that chemistry bouncing off of each other on screen. The interplay is really, really good. So, um, really, if you've not ever seen this film, 
you've got to go check it out. Uh, finally, in a supporting role, but in one that I thought was very fun and certainly brought him into a new era of context for a whole bunch of audiences, 1988's The Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad. Uh, this is, of course, the Leslie Nielsen vehicle. Uh, it's directed by David Zucker and written by Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrahams. Um, David Zucker as well and Pat Proft. And this is based on the TV series that was uh, Police Squad, which was so completely off the wall crazy, it literally only ran for six episodes. Um, while the TV series didn't pan out so well, the film, of course, spawned two more sequels and did phenomenally well there. Um George Kennedy actually is Captain Ed Hawken, who is basically uh, Frank Drebin, played by Leslie Nielsen. It's his partner. And he does a really good job of, even though it's a, it's a smaller role per se, um, he does just a really good job of bringing that straight man to counter Leslie Nielsen's comedy. Because his... He's very deadpan. Drebin is deadpan in his delivery because it's so serious and it's a, and it's a mock-up of all the police procedurals. And yet, while he's still doing all this crazy stuff and doing it deadpan, so that it's not completely you know obvious in the characterizations, you've still got a really good straight man in George Kennedy to bounce this stuff off of. And um, yet, he also kind of takes play takes a little bit of. Uh, takes a little part in some of the fun as well. I'm often reminded of the pistachio scene when they're doing their stakeout and stuff, and it looks like they're wearing, you know, pink lipstick and stuff because of the pistachios. So, um, excellent films all the way around. Shenandoah from 1965. Uh, and again, he plays Colonel Fairchild there. Uh, 1967, The Dirty Dozen, where he plays, uh, where George Kennedy plays Major Max Armbruster. And from 1988, The Naked Gun, from the Files of Police Squad, where he plays Captain Ed Hawken. And those are my movies. Take it away, Tim. I think it goes without saying what kind of actor he was. But whenever he passed away a couple weeks ago, one of the first things I read was this New York Times article. And again, it was published uh, at, on February 29th. George Kennedy, versatile actor who won an Oscar for Cool Hand Luke, dies at 91. An article written by Robert de McFadden. And I think it, it beautifully summarizes George Kennedy as an actor. Because it's not often when you have an actor like him, who he plays these side characters, or one would consider them side characters, or what the writer of this article calls him, the second man... They're never really looked back on in such depth, especially in the New York Times. So I think it's worth reading a few of these small little paragraphs here before I tell you my three squared. Just jumping to the middle of the article-ish, quote, But from the early 1960s on, hardly a year went by without a Kennedy picture. Often there were four or five a year, and he was memorable as the heavy in charade from 1963 with Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, as an army major in The Dirty Dozen, 1967, 
as a regular in the airport pictures and later as Leslie Nielsen's dumbstruck captain in the Naked Gun comedies. He was perhaps best known for his role in Cool Hand Luke, Dragline, a chain gang prisoner whose brutality and compassion as the gang leader not only revealed Mr. Kennedy's rarely seen range as an actor, but also deftly illuminated the character of his tormented fellow convict played by Mr. Newman. Besides winning the Academy Award, Mr. Kennedy's performance won wide critical acclaim, Quote, George Kennedy is powerfully obsessive as the top dog who handles things his way as effectively and finally as destructively as does the warden or the guards, end quote, Bosley Crowther wrote in the New York Times. Mr. Kennedy typically helped to make other stars look good. And he worked with a pantheon of them. Betty Davis, James Stewart, Burt Lancaster, Charlton Heston, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, and many more. Occasionally, Mr. Kennedy headlined the cast of a B-movie like The Human Factor, a 1975 vigilante justice film in which he wiped out terrorists who killed his family. He also starred in two television series. He was a cop-turned-priest in Siraj, seen on NBC in in the early 1970s, and a patrolman in The Blue Knight on CBS in 1975 through 1976. But his stock and trade was the supporting role, and his rugged but bland looks were right for almost any part. He was tall and burly with a bull neck, eyes that widened with shock or narrowed to menacing slits, a disingenuous smile and big ham hands to grip the gun or slap the girl. In the mold of Lee Marvin or Lee Van Cleef, he was a first-rate thug, and his deadpan look was perfect for disaster pictures or comedies. And again, the article goes on from there. I was quoting a selection from the New York Times article, George Kennedy, versatile actor who won an Oscar for Cool Hand Luke, dies at 91. So without saying much more, my three films are... I apologize if a couple of these are cop-outs. The first one, I was trying to go between either Charade or this pick here, which is Airport. But I went with Airport, the 1970 film in which he plays the character of Captain Joe Petroni. And in fact, he did appear in all four Airport movies, Airport 75, Airport 77, and the Concord Airport 79. These were the disaster-type movies, all revolving uh, an airplane. (laughs) None of them are, like, amazing movies. If anything, they are—a couple of them are so bad that they're mildly, mildly entertaining. But you can always count on George Kennedy's honest portrayal of Captain Joe Petroni. But again, I was kind of going between that and and charade for nostalgic factor. For me, I landed on Airport. Next for me is a movie that Matt and I actually watched quite recently, but but I think this is another one that definitely fits into his category of buddy films. This one, he is a different type of second man, this time to Clint Eastwood in the Clint Eastwood directed film The Iger Sanction from 1975. He wasn't the dumb, goofy, lovable second guy, nor was he the tough, hard-ass, with a heart of gold second guy. This was like the hammy, cheesy, 
you know, the, the, the actor who is very much like, oh, come on, Hemlock, you got this, buddy. You're the best goddamn detective in the world after myself. You know, just kind of like the really cheesy lines like that he had throughout the entire thing. And it's also kind of a treat watching George Kennedy play opposite to Clint Eastwood. This movie is both amazingly shot as well as it is horribly dated when it comes to characterizations of gays. <laughs> but needless to say, the movie is is hilarious, if not for the shock factor of its datedness. And I think it's even worth mentioning that here in the Iger Sanction, George Kennedy does a lot of rock climbing on his own. It must be worth noting that Clint Eastwood, he doesn't actually play a cop. In fact, I got that wrong. He is a professional assassin who doubles as a art professor at a college. And his friend is George Kennedy. But anyways, he pretty much gets made to come out of retirement to avenge the friend uh, to avenge the murder of a friend of his. And so George Kennedy is one of his buddies who is kind of like aiding him on this particular mission. Do check it out, if not, again, for the ridiculousness, but better yet, George Kennedy climbing a few rocks and looking muscular while doing so. And lastly is the number one George Kennedy film in my book. It is, of course, probably the cop-out of this week, Cool Hand Luke. What is there to say about this movie? If you are a film lover, you should have seen this film. The man, Paul Newman, you know, Cool Hand Luke, who will not conform to authority. He is in a rural prison, and he will not conform to the prison warden's ways. George Kennedy has some of the best lines in this movie. Not only is he the second part to the I can eat 50 eggs bit of dialogue where Dragline, which is George Kennedy's character, responds with, nobody can eat 50 eggs. And somebody else says, you just said he could eat 50 eggs. And then Dragline asks, did you ever eat 50 eggs? And Luke says, nobody ever eat 50 eggs. And it goes on from there. Everybody knows that bit of dialogue. If not, you should familiarize yourself with that. But the best George Kennedy drag line bit of quotage that I think helped win him the Academy Award is the following. At the very end, when you find out, or when you know, Cool Hand Luke is dead, all the other prison mates are questioning Dragline about him because Dragline ends up getting caught and being put back in prison. His response, his his little monologue here that closes the film is... They took him right down that road. What'd he look like, Drag? Yeah, Drag, what'd he look like? He had his eyes open and closed, Drag. He was smiling. Smiling? <laughs> That's right. You know, that, uh, that Luke smile of his. He had it on his face right to the very end. Hell, if they didn't know it for it, they could tell right then that they weren't ever going to beat him. <laughs> that old Luke smile. with some boy cool and luke l he's a natural born world shaker 
And that's it. That's the end of the movie. That right there shows you the criminal with the heart of gold, the the tough man with the heart of gold drag line right there. He was the only one that appreciated Luke to the very end. And if anything, he was proud of him to the very end. And it's an incredibly touching moment. And in fact, I think one of the most touching moments of cinema history. So again, my three favorite George Kennedy performances are from his portrayal of the captain in Airport, his second buddy companion to Clint Eastwood and the Iger Sanction, and then finally his performance as Dragline in the classic 1967 Paul Newman flick, Cool Hand Luke. Right on, right on. Okay, so that concludes our three squared, and next week we are going to be doing a copycat throwdown featuring Turner and Hooch versus K9. That's right, folks. That's going to be the flicks we will be comparing because they're kind of movies that are similar. You know what I mean? Uh, and that's what we're doing for our copycat throwdown next week. And without further ado, I believe that brings us to the movies, does it not, sir? Yeah. Well, of course it does. <laughs> oh, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> y- yes. <laughs> Here we go, folks. It's the movies. <laughs> This week are 2015's Macbeth, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, and Zootopia. So, where would you like to start, sir? Uh, Zootopia, I think is what it's called. <laughs> Very good. All right, uh, let's see. Zootopia, 2016 American 3D computer animated comedy adventure film. Uh, this is a Walt Disney Animation Studios film and, of course, released by Walt Disney Pictures. Uh, let's see here. It's directed by Byron Howard and Rich Moore. Uh, and it stars Jennifer Goodwin, Jason Bateman, Idris Elba, J.K. Simmons, Tommy Chong, Octavia Spencer, Jenny Slate, and Shakira. So, uh, let's see here. Basically, this is uh, an anthropomorphized world of animals who have evolved beyond their baser instincts and now live in harmony in the world of Zootopia. Uh, capital with the capital of like, <clears throat> I guess the capital city of Zootopia, which has this, you know, huge, all these different uh, tundra style areas so it's got like a rainforest section and a tundra section and an arctic section, you know, stuff like that. So that all these play- people can live uh, together, but then, of course, they come together in the main city central, stuff like that. So um, we're following the the girl, a young rabbit named Judy Hops, and she is going to be the first bunny police officer ever in the history of Zootopia. And after working so hard and trying and and getting there, she's of course um, put on parking duty, where she comes across Nicholas P. Wilde, a fox who is basically a con artist of sorts, and he is uh, voiced by Jason Bateman. Um, Judy Hopps is voiced by Jennifer Goodwin, and 
while they initially don't like each other very much, certain circumstances force them to work a case together. And because of the nature of this case, certain aspects of predator versus prey come out and... um you have stereotypical issues and particular names that should that 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 are used and words that are said by particular types of animals that shouldn't be and you basically kind of have a, a an allegory for um well i mean you know for racism and and it's a very kid friendly start to a good discussion for today's kids about racism and the role that uh, fear plays in our stereotypes and prejudices. It um, also kind of talks about how we also kind of get sucked into things by the media and how we have to learn to start with yourself to change the way things are. Now, um, this film is actually really, really good for those reasons. I found that it makes an excellent primer for children on this topic because, um, in an allegorical sense, you know, you're looking at bunnies and, uh, and foxes, right? And you're dealing with predators as a group of people who are small and prey who are the larger preponderance of the population and how they have to deal with each other but should be equal so while i think that this movie does do uh does do its subject matter justice in its ability to introduce it to kids it's by that by its very nature drastically oversimplifying things when it comes to that which is fine because again this is an introduction to kids but i think people may take may take a little too much of this film to heart and because of the writing and the pacing of the story itself it kind of lends itself to that so it really borders this line of preachy versus good allegorical storytelling um and i think for the most part it it rides that line pretty well um my my biggest criticism for the movie outside of that is really just kind of um really just kind of the heavy-handedness of the characters and i don't mean that in any way because of the subject matter or any kind of points it's trying to make or anything like that it's just that these characters all of the characters no matter all from idris elba who plays kind of like the chief all the way down it's it's something that has to be done with such delicacy because of something that everybody has seen before including kids with their tele with the tv shows and the stuff that they watch and the movies that they've seen um, especially any of the Pixar movies that, that have come out and stuff lately, uh, or the spinoffs like Planes and stuff like that, that it's just too easy to go overboard with characterizations. Uh, for example, there is a, um, a, a, a cheetah who's the front desk guy, and he go, and he's uh, Clawhauser is his name. And it, he's kind of like trying to be this Josh Gad wannabe, um, and it's characterizations like that that just 
easily go over the line. And while they're kind of funny at first, um, they kind of great by the end of the film. And there's more than one of those kinds of characterizations that work. But when they focus on just the story between Judy and Nick, it really seems to work well overall. Um, I give this one four out of five. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Really, really like this movie. Um, and as I said, it's a really good primer for kids to help them open up a dialogue about um, race and other issues that will that are very prevalent today. So... There you go. What do you got there, Tim? I thought it was a pretty good movie. I heard something that originally the movie was going to be about the fox who ends up coming into contact with the rabbit through, via his shenanigans and whatnot. But then, like, in the last minute, they decided to focus on the rabbit and have it be the rabbit story, which I think was the best idea and... Therefore, we got something that felt fresher than a number of other Disney movies because it's it's being told from a different point of view. And as well, you throw in this allegory, and it's definitely fresh. It's even more fresh. It's even fresher. But I, too, felt that the movie was too heavy-handed by the end of the movie. The whole allegorical idea was a good idea, but... The idea needed to exceed past the idea. Because if you keep referencing it and keep being heavy-handed with it, it's not naturally flowing. I think it's better to watch the movie and think about it, and at the end, there's, you know, there's the message and whatnot, and then it processes in your mind, and you realize, oh, wow, this movie is about this, and you go back and you can watch it again. Like a lot of kids, more than likely, will watch the movie. And go back and watch it again. And pick up more on what the movie was exactly talking about. Now I understand that's not what they wanted to do. And I understand they wanted to throw in a couple like, Oh hey, this is what we're talking about just so you know older folks. That's fine. But they could have done it in a more creative Disney way. Other than being heavy handed. That is honestly my main complaint. I thought the story kind of lost its traction by the end. It became, it became I think, a phone-in for the most part. But I did find in this particular Disney movie, the humor is classic, like Disney Pixar. You know, I'm talking early Toy Story, or even Toy Story 3, Monsters Incorporated, Incredibles even... Jokes like that, to where the dialogue isn't really that funny, but the characters are being put in situations that are funny. For example, the Sloth DMV, I thought was absolutely brilliant. I thought how they executed that scene was brilliant. I thought the dialogue that the Sloths were kind of sort of having was absolutely brilliant. And it really brought out the kind of humor that I miss from these type of animated films. And that's not the only part of the movie that, that I thought was funny. I mean, there's other moments like that as well. But by the end of the movie, or at the 70% mark, all the humor kind of dies out, and it's strictly story. But it's story that you already know where it's going to go. It becomes a mystery, and then it's like, oh, great, now I have to solve a mystery. And it, it just kind of goes off course and not really for the better. However, I did like it, didn't absolutely love it, but I do give Zootopia 3.5 out of 5. It gives me hope that maybe Disney can make 
funny movies still. Well, then where do you want to go from there, sir? Uh, why don't we continue with the theater movies and go with uh, Cloverfield? All right. 10 Cloverfield Lane, 2016 American science fiction thriller. It's directed by Dan Trachtenberg. Uh, produced by J.J. Abrams and Lindsay Weber. Uh, let's see here. It also and it stars John Goodman, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, John Gallagher Jr. Um, let's see here. Oh, and uh, there's a voice in there. Bradley Cooper. Uh, all right. So we have a young lady who gets into an argument with her fiance. Um, as a result of said argument, she's talking on the phone, gets into a car accident, wakes up in an underground bunker, wondering what the hell to do. Um, she is met by a gentleman by the name of Howard, who is saying, hey, look, you know, shit's gone down up above in the world. I brought you into my bunker to save you and that's what's up um now it's up to her to decide if this is true or not true if um things are going to play out the way he said that they are or is something else amiss and as i like to say shenanigans ensue um all right so this is a pretty uh really and truly this is a pretty decent flick i never watched shaky cam dinosaur foot so I really have nothing to compare this to. And when I found out that this was a, a concurrent film, so it's not a prequel exactly. It's not a sequel. Um, it's a parallel equal. Because, like, uh, you know, again, this is kind of taking place during Cloverfield. Uh, I, I was very happy because, you know, it is what it is. Now, the film does, even though you kind of have an idea of what the film is, you, because of, from what I understand, the way Cloverfield played out, you still have a mystery in this film. This, and it's not just wrapped around, is Howard full of shit? Um, because you, uh, the the movie kind of solves that portion of it relatively quickly um but there's still more to meets the eye more than meets the eye going on within this context and as far as kind of like a it's not really exactly a one-room drama per se but it is an enclosed space drama so you know you only got so many films to work with or i'm sorry so many rooms to work with um it does a good job of basically giving you that little bit of claustrophobia but not squeezing you with it and i think that's really important in terms of the acting and in terms of the blocking uh and the cinematography the problem is though is that because of the nature of the film you either you have to kind of make a choice you either have to make it psychological all the way a la sleuth Okay, Sleuth does is really the original Sleuth uh, does a really good job of that. Or you have to make it physical, which means things are happening, things are moving, and they try to do both. And it's literally trying to have your cake and eat it too. And that's where the movie fails because when it it's kind of like it gives up. Um, just as it ramps up and starts doing one of them good, it kind of gives up to give way to the other and instead of then just saying okay well we're going to switch gears and hold it it then kind of stops and draws back and does it again um by the time you actually get to the i guess the the climax of the movie um 
it just kind of feels like it's done. You just kind of feel like you're done. So you spend the last, say, I don't know, 12 minutes of the movie kind of like, all right, I guess, instead of being like, oh, wow, so this is what it's all about. And for that reason, because of that constant shifting gears and not really letting it find its footing, I give this one 3.75. It's a very likable movie, um, but it really need it really just needed to pick one or the other instead of trying to be both. What do you got there, Tim? You know, I, I think what really did this movie for me, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a 3.75 out of 5 uh, for me as well. But I think what really did this movie for me was that, God, I just wish... Or is that it relied too much, or it didn't really rely too much, but, well, maybe it did rely too much on the idea that maybe most of us didn't see Cloverfield or didn't really make the comparison of, you know, the Clover between the Cloverfield and 10 Cloverfield Lane and Cloverfield of 2008. <laughs> because you know and... I guess this could possibly be spoilers, and if if those of you do not want to be spoilered, then definitely don't listen to what I have to say. I mean, you know what's going to happen. You know what's going on. You know that there's something happening outside, but you don't know exactly what. That is a good thing about the first movie, is that you don't really know what happened in the first movie. Like, was it a dinosaur? Was it an alien? You just don't know. So in this one, you don't know if 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 it is the dinosaur, if it is the alien, or if it's multiple things, because you hear uh, firsthand accounts of what people saw in the bunker before they went into the bunker. And so you kind of have that floating around your head. But what the movie does do good is the subplot, I guess, or the second main plot as to who in the fuck is John Goodman's character. They do a fantastic job at creeping you out and then you start trusting him. And then they they make you creeped out by the end of the movie. So they do a really good flip-flop with this character for that subplot. But on top of that, what the entire movie relies on, not necessarily relies on, but the overall story hinges on what is going on outside. Because she can't go outside because somebody's telling her what is going on. Now, what I think would have worked better is A, either devise the plot, devise the movie to where it doesn't matter what the fuck is going on outside because she has to worry about what's going on inside, which for the most part, the movie does rely on that. Or B, they should have marketed the movie like how they marketed it two months ago when nobody knew that it pertained to Cloverfield. They should have called it something else, which would have warranted at the end of the movie when she, again, major spoiler... Major spoiler, so I'll give you three seconds, three, two, one. Which, like at the end of the movie, when she is hauling ass out of the farmhouse or or off the property, and she hits the mailbox, and the mailbox flies off, and the camera, I forget if it does a zoom in of the mailbox or it cuts to the mailbox, but you see on the side of the mailbox, it says Cloverfield. Well, what the fuck was that supposed to mean? You already knew that, I mean, the movie is already called 10 Cloverfield Lane, so there is no point to that showing of the mailbox. Honestly, I think the movie would have been better 
if they would have kept the marketing as it being something completely separate. Yes, of course, when the movie came out, it was probably going to get spoiled, but not as much. I don't think it would have been uh, known as much. As, I mean, not even to me, because I'm pretty sure if people that were reviewing the movie, if they were told not to spoil the movie, then they wouldn't have said anything. The movie should have should have, should have taken either of those directions. If they wanted to keep it, the whole, you know, everybody knows it's a clover-filled semi-parallel sequel or whatever, great, then you need to make the action happening outside irrelevant because of what she is de- having to deal with inside of the bunker. Other than that, I thought it was a very good movie. When it when the movie is funny, it's kind of funny. I thought the movie could have used more humor. A lot of the jokes were either uh, stale or they fell flat in delivery, mainly from the Emmett character. John Goodman, I thought, was an excellent casting choice, as well as Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I love her to death. I think she is a fantastic actress, and I love seeing her in this. Other than that, it, you know, I went with my significant other, and she was tense and on the edge of her seat from beginning to end. She is very critical of movies, and she thoroughly enjoyed this one. So if you're into edge-of-your-seat thrillers, then do check this one out. Very well, very well. All right, well, that is going to leave us with 2015's Macbeth. Uh, British-French-American adaptation of the Shakespeare tragedy directed by Justin Curzel. Uh, and it stars Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard, uh, also Patty Considine, Sean Harris, Jack Rayner, Elizabeth DeBecky, David Thules, uh, or Thulis rather, and Ross Anderson. Um, now, for those of you who are not familiar, Macbeth is basically, I, want, I mean, the easiest way to sum it up, it's, it is a tragedy. It's one of Shakespeare's tragedies. However, um, it's kind of like his version of the Oedipus story, okay? Um, where you have a guy who basically unravels his whole life based around prediction, based around the the tale of his fortune. And this is... Uh, and so we have the, the man, Macbeth, who stands for... Um, who stands for his his idea of good and what he finds to be right, but upon hearing where his life is supposed to take him, um, kind of goes down a really dark and maddening path, greatly assisted by his wife, <laughs> his ever-conniving wife, played brilliantly by Marion Cotillard. And of course, title role of Macbeth, um, Michael Fassbender. Now, um... The only thing I'm going to say about this film, um, because for me, it's a 4.25 film. If you're into Shakespeare, clearly you're, you're, you've either already seen this or you will see this. Uh, and if you're not into Shakespeare, there's nothing I can do to convince you. Um, so I will simply say this. This is a 4.25 uh, out of 5 movie for me. And the only thing that knocks it down is that a lot of the characterizations at various points feel... Um, I know we've said heavy-handed. I don't want to say they're not trying too hard. It's just that it it just feels more overwrought than needs to be. And while I think it it is pulled off deftly by Michael Fassbender and also very, very well by Marianne Cotillard, um, most of the rest 
of the cast seems to struggle with the depth at which they should be pushing the emotions of their characters. Um, still phenomenal. It's, it's all the battle scenes um, are just really, really cool. Great cinematography. 4.25. What do you got there, Tim? Bring us home. You know, I think that was probably the best way to describe my criticism toward my negative criticism towards the movie as well as it being too overwrought. I think it was too much in Macbeth's head. Well, okay, actually, okay. Well, what I love, what I think separates itself from say the Orson Welles Macbeth from I think the forties and fifties, which is definitely a, you know, your go-to play ad- adaption of Macbeth and also what sets itself from the Roman Polanski Macbeth, which I absolutely adore, which is also, uh, you know, your your go-to, another go-to stage version of the movie. Definitely more gory, more violent, and more cinematic. This one is cinematic in a different way. Macbeth is, most importantly, a tragedy of humanity. And mainly it's the tragedy of Macbeth, tragedy of man, I guess I should say. And this movie does the absolute best job, the best job out of any screen adaptation of Macbeth, showing pretty much the psychotic fall of Macbeth as a man. And it is done brilliantly. I think what aids him are the very things that bothered me about the movie. The movie is absolutely beautiful, stunningly shot. At times, I think the cinematography takes away from the film itself, as well as the music. But mainly the music are strings. And for the first half of the movie, it's that very, you know, for most of these European art house type of films you have that one violin that's doing that one or two strings i wish i remember what it's called but like the vibrato sounding like during these tense situations and you know so you actually know that the character of Macbeth is is all tense right now and the thoughts in his mind are tense you know he's very cerebral in this movie so all the things like the violin that I didn't care for too much or that bothered me a little bit aided what I loved about this movie which is the focus on Macbeth himself normally especially in the Polanski film you see a lot of Lady Macbeth and what makes her a villain as well. This one shows her more as a flawed human being, one that maybe some of us can, in a way, relate to somewhat, because she actually has compassion. She doesn't want Macbeth to do all these horrific things that he wants and does end up committing, even though she is the one that kind of aided him in killing uh, King Duncan. So in that regard, I thought the movie was brilliant. And I cannot wait for the director of this one. Uh, and it's directed by Justin Kurznell. He's going to be, or not Kurznell, but Justin Kurzel. He's actually going to be directing uh, Michael Fassbender's Assassin's Creed movie in which Michael Fassbender, Michael Fassbender will be the assassin in Assassin's Creed. So we can expect that one to be gorgeously, gorgeously shot as well. Just hopefully it's not as cerebral as as this one 
Um, and I understand that with Macbeth because it's it's Shakespeare. There's a lot of mo- uh, you know character monologuing about what they are thinking, and so I understand that the way they're doing it, they're doing it in a more cerebral, personal way. I got that, but with saying that, it kind of makes the movie drag on a bit, especially in its first forty minutes or so. But again, I'm not wanting to take away from the absolutely the absolutely stunning cinematography that this movie does have. However, I cannot give this one 4.25 out of 5. I give this one 3.5 out of 5. I thought it was beautiful, just I thought it was a little too much in Macbeth's head for its own good. Who knows, maybe second or third viewing I could see this one uh getting higher points but for right now 3.5 out of 5 for me right on right on okay well that is going to conclude the movies for this week next week we have 2015's the voices um and then we're going to the theaters again for midnight special and night of cups so i think that's all for this week and that brings us to the spiel does it not sir spiel on all right well the music you've been listening to as always has been brought to us by our music partners crew rise of solace you can check them out at reverbnation.com and facebook.com both slash cries of solace as for us we are of course the sls cast and you can find us at slscast.com you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can even follow us on twitter at the sls cast you can also follow me this is matt on twitter at nitwit12345 you can even climb aboard that information superhighway and track down tim on twitter if that's your heart's desire and don't forget you can always subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to john goodman i get to say this when i look at myself on film i just see shit i should have done i'm incapable of watching myself objectively unless it's the big lebowski the writing is so goddamn good you can just enjoy it go along for the ride like everybody else Babe Ruth is one of those things I wish I could go back and do over. It's like being in that dream where you're in the subway with no clothes on. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.